Welcome to the most nutritious hour of business talk all week. This is Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. Your host and moderator is Bonnie D. Graham. You'll hear from the innovators who have learned to use game-changing technologies to shake up the status quo and help move today's businesses in new directions. Now, here's Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, welcome, welcome. If you want to run with the Game Changers, you are absolutely, positively in the right place. And uh, this is where the best run is, we always say, and we always mean it. Let's see what the buzz on the street is today. I have an interesting quote from... From a lady named Hasna Korda, CEO and co-founder at a company called Savior Wardrobe. I don't know anything about them, but I'm going to check them out. Here's the quote. The fourth revolution brought by digital is a turning point for the fashion industry and would ease the process to deliver outstanding and disruptive products and services to consumers. That's the quote. That is a packed quote. Think about it. Fourth revolution. We're talking about the fourth industrial revolution. Digital, digital transformation impacting every company, every industry, every footprint around the world. Now we're talking about fashion. That's right. And I'll tell you why in a moment. And delivering outstanding and disruptive products and services. Every industry wants that. But today we're going to focus on fashion. We're actually going to give you the quote unquote skinny, although I'm not feeling that way right now. The skinny on fashion. This is part two of a conversation we started in February on our series on game-changing retail leaders. It was such a compelling conversation. I had such a good time speaking with our experts. Two of the three original panelists are back. But let me set the stage a little more for what we're going to be discussing. Technology has infused itself. Come on, it's embedded. It's there across how we as consumers expect to engage with retailers and vice versa. But we're seeing it more in fashion than any other industry. So why is this? Fashion retailers need technology for many, many reasons. Number one, they have to achieve transparency. We want to know who they are and what they're doing. They need to go through what we call creation to reuse sustainability. That's right. Sustainability is impacting fashion as well as many other industries. What about hyper-personalization? I want make for me. I want it the way I want it. I want to order it today. I want it tomorrow or by the end of day today. That's hyper-personalization. That requires something called hyper-responsive manufacturing. Can you turn your manufacturing plant into something that just doesn't make for the masses, but use the same equipment to once in a while or not so once in a while be responsive to an individual request? This involves your supply chain, and then you have to deliver just in time. And on top of all this, you need insight into where your inventory is, what it's doing, how it's stocking up, and customer engagement. All I can say is, wow, the pressure on the fashion industry is huge. For up-and-coming design houses, as well as the legacy designer brands, we're going to talk about what we call nano seasons. Fast, fast. They have no respect for the laggards. So the experts speak. I am very, very pleased to welcome back two of our experts. First up, Oliver Stocks will be joining us in a moment. He is the liaison for the apparel footwear and fashion ASUG user group at SAP. And joining him is Rick Barber, the North American Industry Principal for Fashion Retail at SAP. And he calls himself 
a recovering merchant. I always smile when I see that, Rick. Actually, you make me laugh. So thank you to both of you. Uh, Oliver, I'm going to look, look first at your quote you sent me from George Bernard Shaw. This is an interesting quote. George Bernard Shaw, as people may not know, insisted on simply being called Bernard Shaw, but we here in the U.S. insist on keeping his first name George. 1856 to 1950, an Irish playwright, critic, polemicist, and political activist. His influence on Western theater, culture, and politics has extended way past his death. He wrote more than 60 plays, including Man and Superman, Pygmalion, you may know that as My Fair Lady, 1912, and St. Joan, and he had a reputation as a dramatist, Caesar and Cleopatra, The Doctor's Dilemma, Major Barbara, etc., etc., and he won the 1925 Nobel Prize in Literature. Here's the quote. Reasonable people adapt themselves to the world. Unreasonable people attempt to adapt the world to themselves. All progress, therefore, depends on unreasonable people. Oliver Stocks, welcome back. How are you today? Yeah, very good. Thank you, Bonnie. Very loaded quote, isn't it? <laughs> it is. It's massive. So I have to ask you, Oliver, I don't think I've ever asked a panelist this in thousands and thousands of, of times. Are you a reasonable or an unreasonable person, Oliver Stocks? Tell us. I, I, I wished I was more unreasonable, but I tend to be more on the reasonable side. So that's why I uh, really enjoy seeing the disruption we see right now in the world. And I'm just, you know, surprised every single day to see all the news and all the changes that are happening so rapidly. Now, tell me about how this quote applies to fashion. We want to hone in on what's happening. I mentioned so many changes, Oliver, in my intro. We talked about sustainability. Didn't used to have to deal with that. Hyper-personalization. Who knew that a big plant would have to put out one at a time, make for me? And the supply chain and the just-in-time delivery, the customers are screaming, I want it my way, I want it now. So who is the unreasonable person? Can we pinpoint anything in fashion who are going to be these unreasonable people? Or are they just the consumers who are banging on the door of fashion? What do you think George Bernard Shaw would say? I think it's, it's all of the above, right? So when I think about the established brands, I think they got very um, used to being successful and using the traditional channels via wholesale and retail and just having a very good name for themselves. And a lot of these established brands really struggle right now to stay cool and to deal with the really rapidly changing buyer behavior, consumer behavior. And I see it in my daughter myself. She's 12. And the way that she consumes data, that she, the way that she perceives brands is completely different. And that brand loyalty that our established brands were used to for so many years and that meant so much for people like myself and, and all of us on the phone is not the same anymore. So there's a lot of disruption, a lot of change, a lot of things that I would have expected to be unreasonable and impossible are all of a sudden happening with a lot of innovation around artificial intelligence, machine learning, augmented reality, and all of the buzzwords we hear about. So there's a lot of change, and I think I need to learn to be more unreasonable to follow this change. <laughs> <laughs> Very well put. I think I'm I'm going to be the the unreasonable one on this call today. I started Game Changers Radio eight years ago just because it seemed like a good idea, and we've just pushed forward with really good conversations with people like you and and Rick for so many years. So I'm very grateful that you're here. Let me just ask you a quick question: Do you think, Oliver, there's ever a time when the fashion winds are blowing in a certain direction? Let's say a a Hollywood star or a singer decides to change up the colors or the texture. They have a private designer and they do something and then the whole world wants it. Do you think the fashion world is ever saying, oh, 
I'm hitting my head against the wall. I have to do that in the next five days. I have to have that in the stores. Do you think they're ever saying, stop, can't we just go back to the LBD, the little black dress? What's your thought as an insider? Wow, this is like, this is amazing, right? So when I think about our conversation in uh, February, you had just uh, talked about the, uh, the Grammys and what you saw on air there. And you were yes. wondering how in the world people would ever wear dresses yes. like that. <laughs> <laughs> and my response at the time was that, you know, it's all about the, the getting the name out there, right? Getting that, um, like, this aha moment or this wow moment that people, you know, chime in the next day. You know, the way that data are being consumed is so different now. You know, on your device and not doing the show itself, but maybe afterwards in little show um, abstracts or in little jingles or YouTube videos. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's sometimes hard, like, for companies to follow, but they don't have to, right? So not everyone has to follow this hype. In some cases, I think they drive this hype. Those brands drive this hype by just picking that designer or that particular um, celebrity and co-developing something just for them. So it means they kind of already know that it's coming and have something available at the store. But in some other cases, it's just a like a, you know getting the brand name out there, increasing the brand value by having hits on uh, the different internet and social media sites. And that way, establish your own, you know, ability to be in the space with all these cool new people. But at the same time, you know, there are a lot of other people like us who don't want to be this, um, you know, this hip and don't need it at this time. So I mm-hmm. think there's space for everyone. It's just so many different channels now. And we need to make sure we focus on the ones that are profitable, where we can succeed. And, you know, our job is to help companies to find that sweet spot. Thank you very much. Very interesting and very provocative answer. And I have to tell you, Oliver, I had forgotten what I said about seeing fashion on TV at the Grammys. And I really appreciate what you said because you're you're bringing back the memories. Well, we'll talk a little bit about style later in the show. But thank you so much for joining me. And I have a little uh, insider note here to my audience. Today is March 27, 2019. And both Oliver and Rick not only are on Coffee Break with Game Changers right now here, but they're going to be on Retail Leaders on another topic with me later today. So I hope you'll hear them both. We're going to let them have a little break of a couple of hours and have a sip of something refreshing, but we'll talk about that later. So Rick Barber is waiting patiently, and Rick, the last time I said to a guest that he was waiting patiently, I got the following answer, how do you know I'm being patient? So I I try not to say (laughs) it, but it's, it's an old habit. Rick has sent us a wonderful quote from Mahatma Gandhi. Anybody doesn't know, his full name was Mohandas Karam Chand Gandhi, 1869-1948, an Indian activist who led the, was the leader of the Indian independence movement against British colonial rule, and he employed nonviolent civil disobedience, which became uh, used by many, many other leaders around the world. Anyway, the uh, honorific Mahatma means high-souled or venerable in Sanskrit. That was first applied to him in 1914. He's also referred to as Bapu, B-A-P-U, which means endearment for father or papa, and also Gandhi Jai, J-I, the father of the nation. Interesting, October 2nd is celebrated in India as Gandhi Jayanti, a national holiday, and worldwide as the International Day of Nonviolence, and we need more of that. Here's the quote. Live as if you were to die tomorrow. Learn as if you were to live forever. I love the quote. Rick Barber, how have you been? I'm great, Bonnie. It's great to be with you and Oliver today. 
Thank you very much. Happy to have both of you on board. Talk to me about this quote. What would Gandhi say if he knew that here in 2019 you were bringing up one of his quotes in application to the fashion industry and the digital age on an internet radio show? That's packed. Uh, What do you think he would say? (laughs) That's certainly a loaded question. I'm sure he'd be pretty shocked and perhaps disappointed that such a profound thought process was being applied to apparel and and fashion, but having lived it and and been in it my entire life, it it is uh, a big part of my identity, and constantly trying to learn and live to the utmost is part of mine, so that's how I sort of blended that together. It was a bit personal and a bit professional. Mm -hmm. I think that the the legacy brands today are facing sort of a precipice of, if I don't change who I am and what I am, I will be uh, no longer around. And I think as I grew up in that world, you know, there was a sense of we want to learn, but we're never going to change and adapt. We'll try to take those changes and make them into our formula. What you see today is companies that adapt formulas or understand analytics or understand trends like Oliver just said, and they make it part of theirs as opposed to imposing their view on fashion. So I think, you know, if you, if you think about it, and I use this, I speak to my sons, I have three little boys. Mm-hmm. I want them to constantly be learning. I've, they tell me in the morning they don't want to go to school. I say to them, I wish I could be going to school today. I would be going to school every day if mm. I could go to school. So try to, try to enjoy it the best you can because someday you'll wish you could go back there. I think there's a lot of fashion people that wish they could go back and start this process over and break the bounds of some of the practices they've, they've you know, encumbered in their careers along the way. Very interesting. Thank you. I'm, I'm glad you both referred to your, your young children. Uh, I, I'm going to refer a little bit later to my mom, who passed away two years ago last week, but something about her sense of fashion, uh, fascinating. I, I brought a lot of her clothes with me that were just, just too gorgeous to give away, but we'll talk about that. Question for you, Rick. In your bio, you say you're a recovering merchant. We have to ask, (laughs) from what are you recovering, to say it grammatically correctly? What was it like being a merchant? Just give us a little bit. I was lucky enough to grow up in the the retail world before it became, um, you know, overly uh, saturated. And the days of being a merchant were replaced by being an accountant. I was I was fortunate enough to work for people who would tell me what's the right product, what does she want, and let's go out and find that at the right price, not what's the price and then we'll back into what that fashion needs to be. So I really was fortunate enough to grow up in that age. And then over the course of my career, it became more of being an accountant. It, and some mm-hmm. days I would be in fashion meetings with my peers and someone would be showing a new dress or a new blouse and people would be running quotes of numbers of things they would bought, but I would look around the room and no one had actually looked up to see the dress. They just knew they needed a dress and they needed it for this quarter, and it doesn't matter what it looks like as long as it gets to the margin. And I thought to myself, there's something wrong here, because the customer doesn't know any of that. She needs to fall in love with it when she walks up to the fixture. Yes. She needs to see it on a star on the runway and fall in love with it. And we'll figure out all the other things, but it's about that, that, that inspiration you get from that garment that I have. There's nothing more personal than what you put on your body. It's your calling card when you go out into the world. And if you lose that being a merchant, then you're just an accountant. Oh, that's that's uh, that's deep. That's very, very deep. <laughs> it, it is very personal. And, and now let me just bring in a little story. I started 
learning the drums about eight months ago when I've already played with a rock band through the school. I've adult rock band through the school where I take my lessons. And we were on stage at a place here in, in the Raleigh-Durham area, North Carolina, called Motor Co. And it, I've never seen anything like it, Rick and Oliver. It's just a, a big hall with a stage with a lot of – they brought uh, all kinds of instruments and, and sound equipment and amps and microphones. And we had about nine different bands, some of them seven, eight, nine years old, all the way through to, to adult bands. I was in one, and we took turns on stage. Each band got four songs, but there was almost no seating. There were just some bleachers on one side and a bench on the other. People came, mostly families, of course, and they just stood in the middle like they were ready for a rave or a wave or something like that. But I wanted to I wanted to get myself in the mood as the drummer playing some some heavy duty rock songs, okay, with this band and I wanted to dress the part, not just people showed up in jeans and in shorts. I always wear a black dress and I just decided to take a look through the closet and my mom, as I say, who passed a couple of years ago, somewhere in the past had bought this red zip up jacket with black edging around the cuffs and the collar. It was just almost like a, not a sports jacket, almost like a windbreaker, but it was cotton and it was red and the red fabric was um, kind of pieces that were overlaying, tiered, if you will. So it looked like the epitome of rock and roll. It was just one layer going on top of the other with some little gold uh, accents down the front, little gold buttons. And it was so incredibly cool. And I decided that jacket was going to express my coolness as a rock drummer that day. And I have to tell you, Rick, when I wore that, it just made me feel great. In the moment, it made me feel like a rock drummer. Can you respond to that, that a piece of clothing can, can almost represent to us who our brand is even before we realize the brand? What's your thought on that? Yeah, I mean, think about the phrase, a picture says a thousand, is worth a thousand words, right? You present yourself into the world every day. It's who you want to be identified with. We identify as species by the way we look at people and the way mm-hmm. we, uh, we intuitively look at them. So it is the way, unless we're going to go back to cavemen and loincloths, it is your <laughs> ability to, your calling card is who I want you to see before I open my mouth. Yeah. I'm going to go in the best suit and a great shirt, right? Because that guy is professional. I'm going to go in a casual blazer or a pair of jeans. You say, well, this guy's got a relaxed attitude, but he's a little mm-hmm. serious. You're going to go in a pair of ripped jeans and a sweatshirt. You know exactly who this guy is and his lifestyle. And, and that is who we are. So it, it is our own ability to express who we are to the outside world before they ever get to speak to us. Very well put. And, and I, I uh, spoke with somebody on my personal radio show on Monday night, and he was explaining, he's an IT consultant, he was explaining how brands work. And he said, a brand isn't what we say about ourselves, how we think, how we dress, how we speak, what we write in our resume or on our business card, if you still have one. A brand is how people perceive you. It's what people mm-hmm. say about you, what they think when they see you. That's exactly what you said, Rick. Oliver, I want to get you in on this. What's your thought about fashion and our personal brand? What do you think? Yeah, so it's, it's for me uh, just a personal story. So born and raised in Germany, you know, but now in the States for 18 years. Um, I still stay very close to my Hugo Boss brand. <laughs> it's just been the brand mm. that I always aspire to, and it was like the professional man I wanted to be. And when I first came to the States, I was a little irritated to see the dress down and the less um, suits and the less ties. And initially, it was an uh, interesting um, situation because you had to get used to that because you identified yourself in the, German, in the German business world 
as what you wear. You know, if you wore the right things, mm-hmm. if you wore them proudly, if you had the right tie, you were someone. You even learned that in business school. How do you dress for success was one of the classes I took, believe it or not, in Düsseldorf at the time. And then this was all blown away, and I would go into a board meeting in the U.S. in jeans, and it felt initially a little weird, and I had, some, you know, I had to take um, some time to adopt to it and say, no, this is about me as a person and not what I wear. But it's interesting. Even the German Manager magazine, if you would take it today, if you would buy it today, there's a whole section in the magazine about you are what you wear, and here are the brands you need to be the right management person that you want to be. Very interesting. I don't see that in the States so much anymore. Yeah, isn't that interesting? And I remember the days when when I went on a plane, Oliver, on an airplane, on a trip anywhere, and I dressed. Sometimes I even wore a hat. Uh, not gloves, but, but I, I wore a hat, I wore a dress or a suit. And getting on an airplane or going to the theater in New York was an event, an occasion, a happening. You dress for what will I wear to go to the theater in New York? Yeah. And today, if you go, OMG, looks like people just rolled in from whatever they had on that day to go to the supermarket or coming out of the gym. There's no more sense of this is... This is a, an event that requires some thought in how you want to dress because you're part of it, right? You're part of that event when you go to the theater. You're the part that responds to what's going on stage, and they sure dressed for the success of the play. Very interesting. Uh, Rick, chime in on this. What do you think? Do you have a very personal branding story you want to share, Rick? <laughs> uh, well, so I, I – I relish the day when casual uh, went to to work because there's something super simple about a suit, a tie, and a shirt that it was like granimals. It didn't matter how dark it was in the morning as I got dressed while everyone was sleeping. I could put on a shirt, a, a tie, and a suit, and invariably, it all worked out. The day that it became casual every day, I stand in front of that closet staring at it going, now what do I do? Like, what goes with this? What goes with that? I've now, over the years of being able to do it, I've actually gotten very comfortable being who I am and, and not relying on the clothes. It's been an interesting personal transformation. But I will share with you mm-hmm. that I got on a plane the other day to Germany. I was meeting uh, Oliver and the rest of our team in Germany. And it was on a Sunday, so I sort of wore sweat. And I prayed to God no one would see me because I knew I was going to be sleeping on the plane. It was nighttime. It was seven hours. But I prayed to God no one from work would see me like that (laughs) because I was embarrassed that I was in sweats. And the last three flights I put on clothes. I'm like, they can't do that again. Oh, that is so funny. And I have to tell both of you that uh, the first time I played drums at an open mic, and just to clarify, open mic is where you go and you sign up to play and you tell them, I want to play three particular songs. And then the person running the open mic looks at the audience, which is, they're all musicians, guitarists and singers, people with harmonicas, there were other drummers there, and I went up, and I'm a drummer, and they knew me, and I said, I want to play these songs, and he said, um, okay, who wants to play, and Mustang Sally is becoming my 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 theme, my theme song these days, because I always play it when I go up, who wants to play Mustang Sally, Wilson Pickett, 1950-something, with Bonnie, so a couple of guitar players had no idea, was, oh, I'll play, I'll play, I'll play, and then an older guy with his really long beard, 
I don't know where he came from. He has a harmonica. He said, I want to play Mustang Sally. And then they found a singer. said, well, I don't know the words, but she brought them up on her iPhone. And she's standing in front of the mic with her phone with the lyrics. And then they said to me, okay, count us off. And I'm playing Mustang Sally. So a dear friend had brought me to the open mic. It's at a tavern. It's after 9 o'clock at night. It was a little distance from home. And we went together. He was kind of my chaperone slash manager. So somebody came up to him and said, do you know her? He said, yeah, I'm with her. And he said, uh, chick drummer, huh? And my friend said, yeah. And he said, never saw a chick drummer in a dress. <laughs> that has oh my become gosh. my brand. I'm the chick drummer in the dress. And a friend of mine who's a publisher, an independent publishing house, said, said to me, when you ever get around to writing your memoirs, Bonnie, it's going to be called the chick drummer in the dress. But it will be in the black dress, of course. So anyway, my <laughs> brand was decided, Rick and Oliver, by what I was wearing. Are you surprised, Rick, by that? No, not at all. Think about it. That was your calling card. That was your yeah. moment to say, this is who I am, and I'm Absolutely. different than the other chick drummers, right? Yep, and there, by the way, are wearing sweats and hoodies, so what can I tell you? <laughs> so let's do a little bit of, uh, it's almost half past. I'm really enjoying this conversation. I told you when we have just two on the panel, we really can do a deeper dive into into your thoughts on what's happening on the topic. So let's do a deeper dive into who the two of you are. I think we already know your, your personalities and how you sparkle when you're speaking, both of you. Oliver Stocks, let's get a little background here. Number one, where are you calling from today? You mentioned you've been in the States 18 years, originally from Germany. Where are you? in terms of geography today. Number two, what's your favorite drink that makes you do what you do so well? And number three, give us an update on what your role is. Go ahead, Oliver. Sure. Thank you, Bonnie. Yeah, so I'm calling in today from my uh, quiet home office outside of Boston in Massachusetts. And if you mm-hmm. believe it or not, we still have snow on the ground. No. So we can finally feel the spring, but that snow from the last snowstorm is just not melting. So wow. really looking forward to the spring. And that's what I love about this area, by the way. The four seasons are very distinct. The winter is long, but it's beautiful to see the spring coming. So that's, mm-hmm. that's where I'm right now. And my favorite drink today at this point, actually, it's just a ice-cold water that I drink out of a, a glass bottle with a uh, cryptic letter P on it for the Peloton. So it's mm-hmm. a Peloton water bottle. And um, I have that today because what I'm going to do between the two shows today, Bonnie, is I'm hoping that during the lunch break I can get on that Peloton bike and get a workout in because that's also in line with our topic today, one of the phenomenons in my perspective, how a, you know athletic fitness brand pretty much comes out of nowhere with the idea of connecting people via the um, you know, society, the community of practice they build around the Peloton bike mm-hmm. and then the Wi-Fi that lets you connect with other bikers when you live in Boston and you have those long winter nights, uh, it's a beautiful way to get an exercise in. You connect with fellow riders and uh, you see them wear athletic clothing that has also a little letter P on it for Peloton and all of a sudden mm-hmm. a new brand is born. And I thought that was an interesting story to share um, in terms of um, something that's new that I did not see coming at the time. And I was never yeah. a spinning biker either, so I was usually mm-hmm. a runner. But um, I really enjoy that, um, mount, that, that bike and uh, what you can do with it in terms of having scenic rides on your iPad-like screen in front of you or having mm. a competition with someone in your neighborhood or someone on, in a completely different part of the world online in a class that you consume or a um, taped you know, show that you watch and you just enjoy basically working out um, at your own time. You know, Whenever you have those 30 or 45 minutes time to get a workout in, 
you can do it at your own pace, at your own time, and you can do it in a connected fashion with people who are simple, you know, very similar-minded as you. And then in terms of my work at SAP, mm -hmm. so I've been around for 21 years now with SAP. I spent the yes. first three years in Germany in the development and education department for fashion solutions. And that's what brought me to the States in 2001 to help rolling out those fashion solutions. In the meantime, we've really added a lot of different portfolio um, ideas, you know, in order to cater to all of the different varieties of fashion companies from manufacturing, wholesale to retail to e-com. And I'm in the fortunate position to be an executive advisor to help companies at all stages of their life cycle in working with SAP solutions from pre-sales to post-sales to implementation and anything I need to do in order to make our customers happy in using our solutions. Thank you very much, Oliver. And by the way, I don't know if I told you, but I lived in North Cambridge for several years. Oh, yes. Yeah, yes, I was know the weather better. I would, my husband was at Harvard Architecture, and I was commuting to Bronxville to finish my sophomore year at Sarah Lawrence College. And, uh, mm -hmm. yes, I remember North Cambridge. I remember the weather. I remember very distinctly the four seasons. And I remember yeah. in the winter that what the, this is going to sound really old-fashioned, when the husband went to work, yes, I said that, and the wife was home taking care of the house and the children, the wife would put out a garbage can with their name printed on it in big ink or big uh, big paint letters in the space where the husband's car would fit when he came home because the snow was on the ground, the streets were covered with snow, and they needed to make sure nobody stole their designated parking space in front of their little house. So you'd go outside and you'd see the garbage can with the name, the family name on it. You'd know, don't you dare think of parking there because Bob's coming home at 5 o'clock and that's his space. So I, I remember that fondly. Yes, the winters lasted on and on and on. I remember fond memories of Cambridge. Thank you very much, Oliver. And now let's talk. To, and you, what did I do? No, you know what? I commuted to Sarah Lawrence when I was at when we were at Yale. I commuted to Boston University where I finished my degree. I apologize. Too many years and too many memories and too many snowstorms under the bridge. Thank you for those memories, Oliver. Rick Barber, you're up next. Where are you? What do you love to drink? And what you doing? Well, I am in the antithesis of Boston. I am in beautiful uh, Las Vegas watching the sun come up over the strip, looking out the Ooh. window from my uh, my hotel. J-E-A-L-O-U-S. <laughs> Can the children in the room spell J-E-A-L-O-U-S? G-R-E-E-N yeah. with E-N-V-Y. Go ahead, Rick. Yeah, and it's a beautiful morning here. Expected to be 80 degrees. And um, I'm here with uh, actually our partners at Zappos for their adaptive fashion show tonight that SAP is a part of. Mm -hmm. So very proud to be a part of that tonight. Uh, I am drinking a very dark cup of coffee, which is one of my favorite drinks I've shared with you in the past. It's, uh, I just actually finished reading um, Howard Schultz's book, Onward, about the romance of coffee and how its history is about, you know, getting people together to talk and share ideas. So I feel a whole lot smarter now that I love to sit and drink coffee and, and, and BS with my friends because it's a cultural <laughs> thing. I didn't realize I was part of that culture. Um, mm -hmm. I am... Uh, I, <laughs> I am the industry advisor for North America for fashion and beauty. Um, I am uh, from the industry, so I, I do introduce myself as a recovering merchant. I've been with SAP about a year, a little more than a year now. Um, I have the opportunity to be with our key customers, uh, understanding their their situations, their problems, and the opportunities to help them. Uh, a bit of a software whisperer. I have to then go back to you know our team with Oliver's help. He's one of my partners and my teammates to explain to our great thinkers how to, to develop solutions 
that will help them with these real-world fashion and retail problems. Um, and then sometimes have to, you know, explain to the fashion industry some great new breakthroughs that we've been able to leverage at SAP from other industries that may be applicable to fashion and put it sort of in a fashion language that they understand. So it's a great opportunity for me to spend time in the industry I love and I grew up with uh, and also be part of that cutting-edge technology. So I really couldn't be happier about making the move over to SAP. It must be a very exciting time. I'm happy, very, very happy for you. And here I am in Durham, North Carolina. It's sunny. We have about a 30 to 40 degree temperature span every day now. You can wake up with 32 degrees, 37 degrees. It could go up anywhere between 56 to 68 degrees during the same day. Sometimes it'll surprise you and tip up over the 70 degree mark. So we never know. You start out in the morning wearing a coat. You plan a coat for it in the evening if you're coming home late. And in between, between shirt sleeves, shorts, whatever. So I have a window on the world here looking at it, a beautiful sunny day. Blue sky, not a cloud to be seen. And as the two of you probably remember, I'm not allowed to have caffeine on radio show days, and this is a doubleheader day. So it's just cool, clear water for me, and I'm I'm very happy to be here. So you know what, gentlemen, we're not going to take a break because it's already half past, and we have so much to talk about. Uh, we actually have been talking about so much already, just if you're tuning in. This is Coffee Break with Game Changers Radio, presented by SAP. If you're keeping track, this is episode number 363. I started the show for SAP in October 2011, October 5th to be exact. Our topic today is Dress for Success. The future of fashion has arrived, part two. My very special guests are Oliver Stocks and Rick Barber. Both are with SAP, and they join me along with their colleague Peter Akbar on February 11th. We pre-recorded a show for our series called Game Changing Retail Leaders Radio. And Rick, you're in Vegas, and I know a person who is probably near you right now or will be soon. It's Stephen Sparrow, who is the sponsor of the Retail. Retail, retail Leader Show, which you will be both on later today. So tell Stephen I said hello. So let's I go am. to, okay, thank you, and tell him we're doing great and everybody knows what they're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> Insider. Okay, Oliver, I'm looking here at your notes and let's talk about um, the I want it now mentality. Uh, let me just read from your notes here and then you can push this out. You say, I want it now mentality is pervasive throughout the fashion industry. Recent statistics show that over 50% of online transactions originated on the smartphone. You're in the stadium. You see your team win. You order something online and you want to wear the winner's jersey the next day. So is this just in sports? Are we seeing this trend, as we said, when people watch the Grammys or the Oscars or the CMA Awards? What is, is there a demographic, Oliver, of is it people who are millennials is such a broad term now. They're in their mid-30s, for goodness sake. Uh, Gen Z, is it, is it uh, boomers like me? Is somebody, one of my colleagues here in, in my community, North Carolina, are we likely to, to get on, uh, on an order form in Amazon or somewhere and say, oh, I saw this really cool dress on this runway show. I want it tomorrow. Who is doing this, Oliver? I think, I think we're all starting to do it. I think we initially didn't. I think it came more from the Gen Z you know, from the ones who grew up with nothing but an iPhone. You know, when you think about the Generation Z, they pretty much grew up with this iPhone available to them. So their entire life long, they were used to having instant information, instant opportunities, instant offerings, and instant buying capabilities. If they were allowed to do it is another question, but, you know, they can. And then, you know, people like us, 
and the baby boomers, you know, we're not accustomed to it, but we see how easy it is, you know. So when you're in the stadium, that doesn't have to be the young person anymore who wants to have that jersey the next morning, right? Especially living in the Boston area, you know, the Red Sox are huge, right? The New England Patriots mm-hmm. are huge. And when those teams win, you know, you see people everywhere, at the airport, all over the city, wearing the baseball caps, wearing the jerseys. And you see more and more wearing people of all ages the respective winner jersey. And that is like new, right? So I don't think a year ago I would have said that it was important for people like me to also want to have that jersey, but now, as I can get it so quickly, and I learned this from my daughter, why not, right? So I think it's becoming more and more, but we definitely see the young generation caring less and less about a brand. Uh, You know, when you talk broader about different um, garments and, and accessories and anything else that, you know, equates to a brand, you know, in the past, you know, just didn't have that um, ability. So who was most visible, who was on TV, you know, who was out there, like, having the best runner of the track and field um, competition, wearing the Puma, you know, shoes, you wanted those shoes. And there were not many who had that kind of ability to produce Mm -hmm. those types of shoes. But now we see a much larger offering across uh, the globe with the multiple multiple companies uh, picking up that ability and the capacity in the factories to be able to produce those for example, in that case, the shoes. It comes originally from sports, in my opinion, but it doesn't have to stop there. I think it will go a lot farther. And with the influencers um, becoming more and more prevalent and the YouTube videos and the different shows that the younger generation consumes, I believe there will be even more push to get the I want it now and to make sure that uh, people get what they want now. And they will no longer focus on having that from a particular brand. They will Mm -hmm. rather have it from a particular person who they saw wearing it or promoting it on a YouTube show. And that's really, to me, a little bit of a scary thought, how this works. But, you know, the established brands have to just learn from those new um, brands and also get into influencing, also getting into the new media and social media and be more efficient in using those tools. Thank you very much, Oliver. Great uh, observation there. Rick, you want to comment on that? And then, Rick, I have something I want to pick up from your notes here. So, Rick, what do you think about what Oliver shared? Yeah, no, I think Oliver hit it right on the head. You know, the, the Gen Z kid only knows iPhones and, and those type of applications, right, where I can, I'm old enough to remember there was no cell phone or it was larger than a suitcase when you carried it around. So, you know, they've changed the way we shop and they've changed the way we engage in all information. So when they see something, um, they want to get it as quickly as possible. I don't think that's any different than we all saw something from a trend perspective in school or on TV or whatever mm-hmm. that was in a magazine. It's just the mechanism to deliver that has now gotten exponentially faster, allowing for the ability to actually get it now. I want it today. I know I can get that book delivered in Manhattan in the same you know afternoon I ordered it from Amazon if I get mm-hmm. it by a certain time. So the faster the supply chain gets, the more that expectation is rewarded and the more that will become relied upon. <clears throat> very, yep, very interesting. And, and I was intrigued that Oliver said it, it may start with sports, but it's moving out to other areas. Let's talk about um, something here in your notes, Rick. You say, we're witnessing the democratization of fashion. Everyone has mm-hmm. an opinion. No one waits for the Vogue magazine to come out or what the department stores are carrying. People share photos as fashion impulses. Everybody wants to be heard. 
Everybody wants to be known. They want to feel intimately connected to the brand. So, again, let's talk about demographics. Is this across the board? Anyone who can wear or buy anything, this democratization, how far is it spreading? Do do we people understand this? And then I'm going to throw a question to you and Oliver, starting with you and then Oliver. Are manufacturers ready for this? Are they really ready? Have they digitized? Are they hyper-personalization ready? So, Rick, who is democratizing fashion and who is included in this level setting? Uh, we will be led by the children, right, is a great phrase mm. I've heard in the past historically. The Gen Z people of today, they wear what they want to wear. They're just as smart as we were when we graduated from business school, even though they look like they just rolled out of a you know, campus sorority party. But they, they are just as smart, and they are the ones who are personalizing and digitizing things. They are able to say, I like something, and start a trend immediately and empower a brand to capture market share. They're just as equally able to sour on a brand who's done something that they don't particularly like, whether that's a social responsibility or a garment they don't like from a trend perspective. And they're the ones who are democratizing all brands. Are all, you asked if all brands are ready? The answer mm-hmm. is no. I would argue mm-hmm. that most brands are not, in particular legacy brands who just are struggling to get that connectivity and to be able to be willing and have the courage to change to meet what the customer is saying. You know, there's some, you know, I grew up in the days when Ralph Lauren would show the line to us and, you know, there would be a little flexibility in what you could choose. It would have to be the palette that he described. Those days are over. If you go into a designer's showroom today, uh, they will show you the line, but they'll ask a whole lot of questions about how you feel. They will have researched it with a lot of their current customers as the, the database of customer information and feedback um, is growing. And they'll adapt that line as opposed to saying, this is what the brand will look like today. And those brands are the ones that are going to make that transition to a democratized fashion much better than the ones who will hold the line and say, I am who I am. And if you don't like it, go buy something else. Guess yeah. what? There's a lot of people out there to shop from. And these Generation D people will just go shop somewhere else. Their brand loyalty is not like ours. Absolutely. Yep. And and with online shopping, hasn't that changed a lot as well, Rick, where you can just, you get ads. I I just looked at new bedspreads on Wayfair the other day. Every time I go on the web since that, one of the ones that I saved with a heart on it to my save list at Wayfair pops up everywhere. I No matter what I look at in the past two days online, this little ad pops up with that bedspread from that company. No matter where I go, sure. it's trailing me. They will never forget that I looked at the shades of pink geometric bedspread that I ended up not wanting to buy after all, but it's going to follow me. I don't know how long that will last. So do do you think that brand loyalty has changed because it's so easy to just go online and find it? Just put in a description, bedspread, pink, geometric, three shades of pink, queen size, uh, cotton, and and it'll just pop up all over the place. Do you think that has democratized as well from the the advertising side? I'll go one yeah, I, yeah, I'll go one step further. The digitization of the actual transaction is already old news, right? Okay. That's just looking backwards. The digitization of the feedback, the experience the customer has, is the new frontier. Why didn't you buy it? What didn't you like about it? And mm. being able to digitize that information will help them make decisions going further without looking back in the rearview mirror about what transactions already happened, right? If you've already bought it, I don't really care if you didn't buy it. If you bought it, you own it. But what didn't you buy that you were looking at? And how do I take your information about the bedspread you didn't buy 
and 5,000 other people who looked at the same thing and why they didn't buy it. And can I make a decision about my assortment going forward, learning from those buyer experiences or shopper experiences? That's the new frontier of democratizing fashion. How do you digitize the experience? Very interesting. Very. I'm looking at notes. You say brands need to capture zero-party data to understand their customer versus procuring sure. third-party data. Is that what you're talking about, Rick? Well, no, a little bit different. The zero-party data, the, the Gen Z customer will tell you everything you want to know about them from a personal perspective, probably far more than they probably should. But they, they don't want you to have bought it from Amazon, or they don't want you to have bought it from Google. They don't want you to have bought it from Facebook. They're willing to give you their data, meaning I didn't buy third-party data. I know who you are intimately because you're one of my shoppers. You're one of my loyalty customers. Mm-hmm. You've been with the brand since I started out in Soho, and now I have 5,000 stores. They're willing to give information that we would probably never consider giving to a brand in, the, in our you know, baby boomer generation. But just you need to make sure it's secure. You need to make sure it's, it's, gen, it's gen, uh, generic, not generic. It's genuine, right? It's my mm-hmm. data I gave Authentic, you. Authentic, yep. You bought. And that's what I meant by zero-party data. Being able to get that customer's information will, again, be critical to understanding all of the history and the feedback from them as you continue to you know, zero in on what tastes drive that customer's needs or not. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Oliver Stocks, please join us. Everything and anything Rick just said, comment, please. Yeah, so one of our fearless leaders at SAP on the customer experience side said a couple of um, months ago when he first took the role that he wants to provide insight into customer behavior and preferences without being creepy. And what you just explained Mm -hmm. about your own experience is what I call creepy. When that first happened to me, I was very turned off by the brand who kept telling me on every single device, on every single search tool, on Facebook or other Mm -hmm. social media that I was looking at something that annoyed me to a point that I really didn't like the brand anymore. So that is my personal experience. And I think um, everyone is struggling to find out what's the right way to understand what the consumer wants. And we have, uh, in many cases now, an opt-in button, right? Do I want to opt-in or do I accept a cookie so that people can track what I do or do I not want it? I don't think that everyone is educated enough to fully understand how this all works. But I think this whole pop-up um, you know, scenario that you explained earlier can only turn people down. I think that's a big risk for a brand to kind of keep telling you that you looked at something and you didn't buy it and you, you want to know why you buy it or just please buy it now, right? Or give you 5% off and then you buy it. But at that point, you might already completely be turned off, right? So that's my perspective. And we're doing a lot in order to gather information about the customer without being creepy, as we call it. And um, we have a bunch of innovation going on to allow that to happen. And as Rick said, the kids are much more open they share everything, and that, that way you get a quick profile on who they are and what they do. And then obviously all kinds of laws are being adjusted right now to make sure that the kids are not under 13 and all of the above, right? So there's a bunch of stuff that still has to be clarified from a law perspective, and I think the companies are struggling to find that sweet spot. Then in terms of your question um, around manufacturing, when mm-hmm. I first started with SAP, we saw a lot of manufacturing in the U.S. We had a lot of mills. We had production facilities, especially in your home state or current home state of North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And we saw all of this production go away. Everything went to Far East, to China, to Bangladesh. And that had an impact on our SAP solutions as well because they were initially designed for a manufacturing company that would have complete control over the shop floor and you would know what's going on in the work in process. The profitability analysis would be accurate. And all of that all of a sudden was impacted by that switch 
and the companies moved away from manufacturing in the U.S. and went to um, Far East, that implied that the typical 18 months development to market, um, you know, kicked in and the capacity in Far East was, uh, you know, fight for, you know, all the different people fight for the same capacity and that brought its own issues. But right now, to your point, in terms of personalization, and I want it now and I want it here and I want it with my name on it, we see a lot mm-hmm. of manufacturing move back to the U.S. now. We have various different scenarios where manufacturing moved back. And, uh, for example, the Speed Factory of Adidas is a good example. And we have other companies do the same thing, bring the factories back here, um, you know, use advanced um, 3D printing capacities, capabilities, and bring other innovation in that allows you to have a much faster speed to market in the U.S. Thank you very much. I, we're going to fit in one more question here before we go to predictions, which we'll keep really short. Um, Oliver, I'm looking at your notes here, and you say the mandate, where am I now? Okay, the well-informed, well-connected first world shopper has an increased interest in sustainability. They want to know about the origins of the garment, where and how it was produced. So my question to you is, we talk very frequently on Game Changers Radio about the role of blockchain in the provenance, which is a word I don't think that's typically used with fashion industry, but where did something come from if it's i just read an article on digitalist bag about tuna fish they're now doing qr codes on tuna and they can tell which fisher person man or woman caught it and the date and the time and where the processing plant was and what processes were used and how it was cleaned and how it was packaged and how it was put in and how the i think it was the bumblebee brand what where it ended up at which stores is is this possible this provenance with fashion and what kind of who wants to know this who wants to know this it, it becomes increasingly impossi- uh, more possible, not impossible, it becomes possible. And Rick, you can probably speak a little bit about the um, RFID technology as well that we recently saw, which is completely groundbreaking and fantastic. You know, as long as the technology becomes cheaper, then yes, we should absolutely uh, introduce it into this whole process and it will become available. But I think what I wanted to point out here as well is that mm-hmm. there's a growing number of people who are concerned on how something was produced. Was there produced? Was there child labor involved? Was there poverty yes. involved? Was there like uh, yep. pollution involved? And how can we make sure that we understand what we're wearing comes from a safe place? And I'm willing to pay $2 more if it's made in a certain safe place. We, back to the manufacturing discussion earlier, we've always had New Balance here in the Boston area. New Balance always prides pride themselves with having capacity in Lawrence, Massachusetts, where they produce a certain line of made-in-USA shoes, and then mm-hmm. everyone who buys them knows that they're going to be more expensive than the other ones, but it's for a good cause. It's my community. I'm supporting yep. the brand. I'm supporting the local area. And that way I'm willing to pay that $1 or $2 more, right? As long as there's transparency, there will definitely be a willingness to, to buy even at a higher price point. But I think sustainability becomes so important, right? The pollution is, is unheard of. We, we've got to figure out how to do this more efficiently. We've got to make sure that we have a more safe um, production and faster production, and also educate the consumer ultimately to be more interested in, um, in understanding the origin of a garment and making sure that uh, people are in a safe place all over the world, wherever they produce this. Thank you. Rick, quickly, why don't you chime in on this thoughts about sustainability and the origins and, and RFID? Yeah, I think that, you know, uh, again, uh, it is a topic that is near and dear to our hearts at SAP, and we spend a lot of time working on it. The millennial and Gen Z customer makes it a critical buying decision. It's not a nice-to-have. It's a, it's a must-have. I've used a, a, a poor analogy, but I, I, and Oliver's heard many of my poor analogies, but my parents' generation, you know, thought stopping litter was a nice thing to have. Mm-hmm. My generation picked up the litter, 
and learn to recycle plastic every once in a while. My kids recycle every single thing and repurpose it. Um, and that's the change in just three generations of people that that now is a very critical part of it. So there's really two parts to this and the changing the dynamic of fashion. It's not just sustainability and understanding where the garment came from and was it matched in manufacturing safe places. That's also a very critically important part of that. And RFID, you know, is a, is a piece of that. If you think about Nike, Under Armour, Adidas, they've all proclaimed that they will have 100% of their product line containing recyclable elements by 2023. So that's really only around the corner. And I will tell you that they're most of the way there now. They just haven't gotten some of it solved yet. So they're already doing that. But being able to trace it back used to be a challenge because, you know, the technology was cumbersome, whether it was a tag, it was some kind of a chip. Uh, Oliver and I are involved with a a company run by a young lady who's figured out how to shrink RFID technology into a single strand of thread. And I don't mean a piece of rope. Mm. I mean a single strand of thread that you would never know is in the garment, but has a four-year lifestyle when it's wanted. tells you what it's made of, what's recyclable, what's not, where it was manufactured, when it was manufactured, all the things you'd want to have. So the wearability of that technology to track it is, again, accelerating the need for it to be implemented. But there's also purpose-driven. And when you look at things like a Bombas or Tom, it is a critical element of fashion today to not just be disposable fast fashion. I bought this shirt because it was $4 and I could throw it away. This generation of shopper wants to will spend a little more, to Oliver's point, but they want to know where it came from, what you're all about as a brand, and that this is a garment that they can keep for a little while, a little bit of a back to the future. They're actually buying some clothes. Now, their investment clothes are not for years. They may be for a year or two, but it's not I wore it once and I threw it away. Mm-hmm. We see that a lot in the legacy fast fashion brands. If they have not pivoted to a purpose-driven model, they are losing market share to, again, these young startup businesses, which we'll talk about in our, our next episode this afternoon. These fast fashion startup brands touch on sustainability. They touch on purpose. They touch on quality of garment and speed to market with trend. All the things that big legacy brands are struggling to get to. And I think you just very nicely tied this up with your prediction without my having to say it's time for the crystal ball, Rick Barber. Oliver (laughs) Oliver Stocks, I'm going to give you two sentences to wrap up your prediction, and then I have to close and we'll get ready for our show later today. Oliver, prediction, two sentences. What you got? Yeah, so I think customer intimacy will be most important going forward. Um, We need to find the right tools to find out what the customer wants, where and when, and how she or he wants it. And then we need to make sure that we win over the hearts and the minds of the consumer if we want to establish a fashion brand, if we want to be here, and if we want to be here to stay. We need to make sure that we figure out this best way to break into that um, personal environment of the shopper without being creepy. Thank you. I like the way you mentioned that several times, and I agree. And I'm tired of that damn pink bedspread, and I'm not buying it because <laughs> I discovered I have a beautiful red bedspread I brought with me when I moved, and it was still packed, and I found it. So I'm, go- I'm good. Don't sell me any more bedspreads. I want to thank Oliver Stocks and Rick Barber. You're both wonderful, so interesting. I'm fascinated with your stories, your perspectives. You always come to the table ready to have a great conversation. A shout-out to Stephen Sparrow at SAP. Yes, Stephen, they showed up, and they were great, and I hope you're having 
having a, a good time where you are in Vegas. Rick will say hello to you. And a shout out to Peter Akbar, who was on the original panel and is on vacation. Rick, I ho- uh, Peter, I hope you're having a, a great time on vacation and we missed you. But Oliver and Rick kept the fires burning. So thank you very much. And a shout out to Aaron Keller at World Talk Radio, our engineer extraordinaire. Here's my call to action. Fasten your seatbelt. Maybe it's a designer seatbelt. Hey, guys, it's time for designer seatbelt. Sorry. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a fashionable game changer today, just like Oliver Stocks at SAP, just like Rick Barber at SAP. Bonnie D. Graham signing off. I'll be back this afternoon, 2 p.m. Eastern, with Game Changing Retail Leaders. You don't want to miss it. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. The best-run businesses run SAP. To keep the Coffee Break conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter, hashtag pound sign S-A-P-R-A-D-I-O. Please join your host, Bonnie D. Graham, again next Wednesday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a great week.